so McLeod, thank you for joining us on the Greater Vineland Chambers podcast, Make a Point podcast, um, as another one of our guests. And we're excited to have you and learn about your role with the city of Vineland. McLeod, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role with the city? Well, my exact title is Director of the Department of Health. Now, what does that mean? It gets a little confusing for people when they um, have to deal with the health department because it's an entity that actually has multiple heads. Um, by that, I mean, we have the director and that's me and I'm the administrator of the entire health department. In addition to that, we have a health officer and we have an assistant health officer. And we also have a um, supervisor of nursing. And each of them has different responsibilities in regard to health and to public health. And depending on what's going on, um, different people have different levels of authority. For example, the health officer has the ultimate authority when we're in a health crisis, which we are right now in a pandemic. Um, and in fact, according to the law, you know, a health officer, if there is declared a national or a local um, uh, health outbreak, he has the ultimate authority to direct all kinds of resources to address this issue. That's something that's in the state uh, regulations. Um, so he oversees and he's the person that's really responsible for making sure that you know, the, the, all the knowledge is, is uh, filtered through him and conveyed out to the community. So he spends a lot of time on, on pod meetings and reading documents. His name is, is Bob Dickinson and he's, he's really good. And uh, the assistant health officer, Emma, um, is kind of more a hands-on kind of person. She's been spending pretty much all of today, almost every day, on the phone. Right now, she's, she's kind of managing individual outbreaks that we're seeing both in the school system and also in the city um, as a whole, um, advising people what to do. My role is much more administrative, although I'm a part of this whole process. But in addition, also under my supervision is the, the registrar, the vital records division. That is not actually uh, the responsibility of the health officer, but it is mine. And that's to make sure that all births, deaths, marriages, and all those vital records are recorded properly and addressed for anyone within the city of Vineland. Um, so that's kind of what, those are the main pieces of the health department. And that's kind of how the responsibilities play out. Um, so people get a little confused. Well, if you're the director, then aren't you the ultimate responsible person? And the truth is that I am, you know, in that regard. I report directly to the mayor, for example, and the business administrator. But when it comes to things regarding a pandemic or a health issue, it's really, I defer to the, uh, the, uh, the health officer. And we work very closely together. So I would say, we have a really, really good working relationship. And it has to be that way in order for it to move forward 
and to be successful in this community. Um, that, interesting. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, though, that that is so interesting to hear because I don't think anyone really does understand how the health department functions. And um, I'm really glad you shared all that. I, I learned a lot in just those few minutes of learning about the health department because they do assume the health director is managing everything. Yes. And it's interesting that um, that the health officer does have a certain responsibility to be able to command resources um, to address a pandemic. And he does have that authority in that regard. Um, it actually gets a little confusing to the public. It gets a little confusing even for people within the city administration to understand that. Um, and the arrangement in Vineland is not unusual. It's actually pretty common. And one of the reasons that it is that usually the health officer and the health director are not the same person is because there are many other many things that have to be addressed. Um, and if the health officer is preoccupied with a lot of the administrative tasks, he's not able to really focus his attention on the other issues. Um, the majority of health officers, like the one that we have, Bob Dickinson, came into the role by being a registered environmental health specialist. Now, what's that? That's the person that comes out and does inspections for septic, for wells, for food, and all of those environmental issues. On, our, on the other hand, our assistant health officer came into the role, although she has an NPH, a master's of public health, she came in from the educational background. And many of the newer health officers in the state are actually coming into the field from that field of study. So that they are all about communicating to the, uh, the public about things. They're communicators. They're people that are out there in, in the public forum making sure things are happening. So it's, it, there's some changes that are going on. And previously, there, the director a long time ago was both the health officer and the director. That was a gentleman by the name of Lou Cressy. Um, and, and that changed over time. I know the county has the same arrangement we do, and they only recently implemented, I believe, that. Um, they did not have a director before. Essentially, their administrator was their health officer, and they recognized the need to do that. Uh, Salem County has both a director and a health officer. Um, Gloucester does the same thing, and so do, do many of the other counties. They have both because it, there's a lot of things that have to be done. Now, I'm also coming, I'm a little different than a lot of other directors are because my background is in health um, and my degree is in social work and I'm a licensed social worker. And I've worked in the field of, of health. I've worked in hospitals. I've worked in rehabilitation facilities. I've worked in hospice and home care. Um, I've worked with the developmentally disabled, you name it, I've pretty much worked with all of that population. So I bring a lot of that knowledge with me and, and, uh, and a certain degree of expertise in that area as well, which oh, does sure help me. I'm sure that's really valuable because then you're all kind of talking the same language. <laughs> yes, it is very valuable. And one of the things that I've done in the city has been very supportive in that regard. Um, while I've been here, I've taken two courses. Uh, one at uh, Drexel, um, so I'm now a dragon, uh, technically, and one at Stockton. The one at Drexel, I took in epidemiology, 
which was yeah. very interesting. And the other one was in Stockton on environmental, because I wanted to have more knowledge um, about that, uh, about those subjects. They were areas that I had really a deficit in. And it was pretty helpful in the city. It support me. I did go to the classes. They paid for the classes. And um, I'm actually, I was recently asked um, by Seton Hall University to be a member of their advisory council on a degree program. It's actually a certificate program that they offer. And uh, if I can remember exactly how it's worded, it's a very, very interesting title. It's um, it's leadership in divisive times. It's an, actually another word in there. Um, now, why is it very interesting? Um, it's interesting because I'm the only person, their advisory council is about 50 people. I'm the only person in South Jersey who's on that advisory council. Um, the majority of the people on that advisory council for this particular class are not only from New York City, but from North Jersey and from Philadelphia. And there are people like Steve Adubato. Um, he's, I mentioned not only, not only because you would be familiar with him, but because alphabetically he's the first name that appears on the list. He's the A, right? And there are people on there that are VPs of Microsoft, the people that are, um, have made important positions with some of the, uh, the banks and investment banking organizations. So in a wide diversity of people, and I really felt quite honored to be asked, they looked at my, uh, my background on LinkedIn and thought, this guy might be an interesting addition. So they, they interviewed me and they invited me. So I, I'm gonna take the class, it's an online class, um, and you have to take the class so you can speak about it. So we have uh, three or four meetings a year, they're doing them remotely like this is, um, they will be in person eventually, and they will meet at the Seton Hall campus, you know, four times a year, three or four times a year or so. But that, I put that plug that in That is there. awesome. That is really awesome. And, and boy, um, I know our viewers would be proud to know that we're being represented, South Jersey's being represented in that way. That's awesome, McLeod. Yeah, when I was asked to do it, I went, wow, this is interesting. I said, but let me run it past the mayor. He always likes to know. And I said, here's what this is. Are you cool with this? And he went, absolutely. You know, I said, you know, it's it's good for us. It's good for the city yeah. to get recognized, you know? Um, and I'm really quite thrilled and honored to be uh, asked to participate. I'm kind of looking forward to, you know, what's going to be going on. You can actually look at, if you ever, if you're interested, you can go on Seton Hall University's uh, website and look at their whole list of people. I was kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like small fish here, but they apparently thought I was important enough. So, no, that's, like, that's great. Sorry to interrupt on. Do you feel like you bring a different perspective being from South Jersey? Oh, I know I do. <laughs> In what I way? And well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, a, I, Don and I have had this conversation before. Both of us are outsiders, you know, and we've had the conversation about coming from the outside and, and you know, I mean, I previously lived in Los Angeles for most of my life. And prior to that, I lived in New York City. Um, I went, went to school in New York City. I got my graduate degree in New York City. And um, I find myself in South Jersey. And it's really very different than living in Los Angeles or living in New York. I mean, that goes without saying. That's kind of a dumb thing to say. Of course, it's very different. Um, 
But, you know, when I taught at Cumberland County College, where I taught for nine years, students, when they would, I didn't talk a lot about my background, but it would come out from time to time. And they would say to me, Professor, what are you doing here? And I went, you know, you do different things at different points in your life. And I like being here. I like the quality of life here. Um, I think that there's something that I can contribute based on what I've experienced. Now, I can't say that that's always been embraced by everybody, but I'm fortunate that the mayor has embraced it. He's recognized that what I bring, even though it's very different than his life experience, he's recognized that it has value. Um, and it can be helpful in terms of whatever I'm doing. Um, and a lot of people looked and said, well, you know, I was once when I first got here, someone said to me, ah, yeah. These people come from the outside and they're always trying to tell us what to do. So I tend to be kind of careful about what I say, you know, and not being too assertive in terms of saying, well, you know, I come from the big city, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's not helpful for anybody. You know, how long have you how long have you lived in the Vineland area? I've lived here 17 years. OK, so you and I are I'm, I'm hitting my 18 year mark. Um, actually, this month was my 18 year mark. And yeah. Um, the funny thing about that is people think I'm from here now. <laughs> I've been around so long that now they forget that I'm from somewhere else, which I, I think is a good thing. But it is funny when I say I'm, I'm from Massachusetts originally, and they'll be like, you are? I thought you were born and raised here. <laughs> well, they can kind of tell by the way I talk. That oh, well, that's not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't have that South Jersey accent, which is, most South Jersey people don't even recognize. Nobody sure. recognizes that they have an accent. You know, when I first moved from New York to Los Angeles, they went, what's a pocketbook? You know, that's not a <laughs> word that they use, you know, and I would use other words and say other things. I'm like, dude, because they were all like surfer guys that I worked with. You know, you talk funny. <laughs> so yeah, I lost right. that. They're quick Nobody to point can... it out. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can tell where I'm from. You know, we certainly can't tell John that you're from Massachusetts. You know, <laughs> you're not saying yas and ass. <laughs> no, not usually. <laughs> Only when I get really tired, I'll, I'll say, you know, ka. <laughs> ah, right, exactly. the ka. <laughs> or wicked. I do use the word wicked a lot. Uh, wicked. Oh, is, that a, is that a Massachusetts term? It's, it's yeah, Boston area is uh, wicked. Wicked okay. good. Not not bad wicked, wicked good. <laughs> wicked good. I'll have to remember that for my, my friends that live up in that area. You know. Yeah. I hang out with them from time to time. I have friends all over, which is nice. I'm sure. I'm sure. So what are your goals for um, the health department in your role? <laughs> well, I have a lot of goals, not all of which I've been able to fulfill. Um, unfortunately, for the last year and a half, close to two years, you know, we've been we've been really pressed with the pandemic and not able to do much of anything else. But that hasn't stopped us from doing it. Um, we had a temporary kind of like uh, hiatus of our STD clinic, which we started up again um, every week in September. We had a long period of time where we didn't do it. So we've got that. Um, I have been very focused on two areas. And um, they haven't always been things that I've been able to do anything about. Um, but I've it hasn't stopped me from being focused on them. One of them is 
the opiate situation um, in the community. And it's not unique to this community, as you are well aware, and the homeless situation and the mental health issues. These are all priorities for the health department. You know, the, every three years um, in Spira Hospital has to do a, uh, an assessment of the, of the community's health needs. And if you look at that, you can see that those are things that are on there. And I've, I've had a number of conversations with um, a fellow social worker, the uh, CEO of the hospital, who, by the way, Amy um, is also a social worker. So we kind of speak the same language and have a lot of the same priorities. And that's been, I think, a really good thing for us to have a really good relationship with the hospital. And the health departments have not always had the best relationship with the hospital. Um, there have been, you know, I, I think it's it's on the road to being better. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with the person that's sitting in that seat, you know, cares more about some of those issues than maybe some of the predecessors did. That remains to be seen. There's still, it's not without issues. There are always going to be issues, but it's a little bit better. Um, so those things are priorities for me. Um, you know, obviously, there's an old saying, I use it all the time, that when the um, only tool that you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if I'm coming at it from the point of view of, of a social worker and one whose focus has been in uh, healthcare and in mental health and addiction, you know, those are the things that are gonna stand out for me. Um, and those, uh, unfortunately, I don't have to look very far to see them. You no. know, <laughs> they're, they're right there in front of me. No. And, and especially uh, and especially now, um, as a result of the pandemic, how especially mental health issues uh, have just exploded because of the isolation and all the social impact of um, yeah. of the pandemic and what was required of everyone. It's it's really tough. I still see it. You know, it's really tough for people to get back. And, you know, I, I, I don't think we're back, but, you know, getting back into some type of living um, safely. And uh, I, I see it a lot. Like people are very, uh, we all have different levels of comfort <laughs> and what we're willing to um, be doing, uh, what risks mm -hmm. we want to take. And it, it runs the whole range. And, you know, we everyone has their own story of what they've been through because of the pandemic. So it's um. Huge and, the, and the social isolation has not helped that. It, no. You know, one of the things, and I've talked to, I have a lot of friends that work in the educational system. And I, I had dinner with one the other day who teaches at Saboteur School. So she's in an inner city school environment. And I said, Heather, are you finding that the kids are really developmentally behind? She said, oh, you have no idea. You know, she teaches fifth grade and they're bar barely third grade level not only intellectually, um, and de but developmentally. They're, they're thinking, instead of thinking like a 10-year-old, they're thinking and acting like an eight-year-old because mm -hmm. they've been in isolation for two years. Yeah. And you need that interaction. So the teachers have a huge task ahead of them. Um, and these kids have to catch up developmentally as well as scholastically and intellectually. You know, I, I don't envy what they have to go with. Um, I mean, we're having a lot of issues with that as well. When I mentioned Emma Lopez earlier, assistant health officer, 
she spends the majority of her, her time on the telephone with the school nurses because there are outbreaks in all the schools. There are situations where kids are getting sick because the vaccination rate for the younger kids is, well, it hasn't even been approved. It's just getting approved. You know, so the kids are like, you know, they're coming down with COVID or they're getting it in their family. So it's like, they have to go into quarantine. They have to be pulled out of school. Um, the nurses are coping with something they've never had to cope with before. Yeah. Um, so we've got all that. I mean, there was, I haven't seen it personally, but I've been reading extensively about a, a lot of what high school students are saying in a lot of assemblies. You know, you know, when the principals and the administrators are talking to them, they start chanting mental health, mental health, mental health. They are feeling it as well. And I see it with a lot of the younger people, um, both here and in the community, that they're struggling with a lot of mental health issues and they really want help. Yeah. yeah. So I have a lot of work ahead of me. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to make a dent in it. I'm hoping to be able to. It's certainly on my to do list. Yeah, you just got to keep at it. That's all you can do. We're, we're lucky. We're, we're lucky you're doing it. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, you know, they say that the whole purpose in life is not to be happy, but to be useful. And uh, and I embrace that thought. Um, and Einstein said also to be, it's not to be happy, but to do something meaningful. Um, not not every genius also crosses over to all levels of uh, intellectual uh, capability. Einstein is one that did a pretty good job. So I, I like to quote him whenever I have the opportunity. And that's kind of how I feel. And a lot of people say, aren't you like way past retirement age? Even though I may not look as old as I am. They say, I don't think I do. And people tell me I don't. And I went, I have really no interest in retiring at this point because I still have a lot to do. Right. You know, and if, as long as you still have some a purpose in life and something to do and whatever you're contributing is of value, then you stay with it. If it reaches the point where what you have to contribute doesn't have any value, um, then it's time to pack it in. All right, then go fishing. You know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but there'll be value in the fishing as well. <laughs> oh yeah, there, there is definitely some uh, you know some things that I like to do in my spare time. And it's always nice to have more of it. But, you know, I, I really, a, a few years ago, um, I don't know if you knew Dr. DeMeo, who died recently at the age of 90. Um, I, I knew him pretty well through the Italian Cultural Foundation that I was a part of, even though I'm not Italian. But my partner, Robert Odorizzi, whom you may know, um, is the president of the Italian Cultural Foundation. And education is one of their, their principal focuses. And Dr. DeMeo and I would uh, share um, doing a lot of, of educational seminars. He was very much into history, um, particularly, uh, and did his presentations and his travelogue. Uh, my, my interests were a little bit broader than that. I did presentations on music, with, you know, on art, on architecture. And I did a lot on immigration because I had taught cultural diversity at the college. And it was interesting to, do presentations on that because even a lot of the Italians in this community didn't really know very much about the multiple immigrations that have taken place. You know, the first ones 
the second ones, and the third ones, because most of the people in New Jersey are a product of the third one. This, the first one was to San Francisco um, during the gold rush. The second one was to Louisiana, to New Orleans. And the third one was to the East Coast in the later part of the 19th century. And most of those people ended up in New Jersey. You know, so, um, and, and they came from different parts of Italy and had different experiences. So when I asked him, because he was, as you know, he was a doctor, I said, Dr. DeMeo, are you still practicing? Oh yeah, what else would I do? And he practiced only, almost until the last couple of years when he wasn't able to do it anymore. Yeah. You're well into his 80s. And I looked at that and I appreciated that. I said, you know what? If yeah. you still got something that you can, you can contribute, then keep doing it. And if, if it matters to you. So yeah. I learned my lesson from other people as well. I don't make it up. <laughs> yeah. You always learn from others. It keeps you going too. You know, it keeps you going. Absolutely. Jared, you, you have another question here? Uh, you, mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned fishing. What are some other activities that you like? Well, to actually, do actually I, I've only fished once in my life. Uh, so I, I, I say that, you know. Um, metaphorically. <laughs> metaphorically, thank you. I say it metaphorically. What I like to do is very different than that. Um, I, I like to ski. I still ski, you know, my age. Um, I go sailing with a good buddy of mine who, by the way, keeps his boat in, in Rhode Island. He lives in New Hampshire. And uh, he's in, he might be in Maine right now. He's spending the summer in Maine. So I like to go sailing with him. Um, I hope one day to get my own sailboat. In the meantime, he lets me sail his. Mm -hmm. Cool. We've known each other for a very long period of time. So he trusts me that I'm not going to run into a shoal and crash into another uh, <laughs> sailboat. Um, right, right. So I like to do things like that. I go camping. I usually spend at least a week um, away up in the uh, Poconos, up near, um, actually quite not the Poconos, it's up near Thorpe. It's a campground oh, okay. that I like to go to. Um, and I'll spend the week there and I just chill and do nothing for a whole week. It kind of recharges my batteries. Um, for my birthday last year, not this year, but the year before, I went uh, rafting on the Mullica River with a good friend of mine, uh, Rochelle DePolito, who's the, um, the administrator of the court. And uh, we couldn't get her husband to go. He was certainly not interested in doing it. And my partner, Robert, said, hell no, I'm not going there. Rochelle says, yeah, she's game for anything. So we went and rented a canoe. And uh, on the hottest day of the year, because my birthday is in July, it's always really, really hot. And we went on the Molokka River. So I like doing such stuff like that. When I lived in California, I used to go whitewater rafting. Oh, okay. So I like a, a lot of active sports you right. know, and activities. Um, I'm kind of not a guy that would go fishing to play golf. You know, that doesn't really, you know, float my boat, so to speak. Right. You, you, like. you, you need a little bit of that adrenaline going, I, I see. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know I mean? and, and I very much like to travel a lot had the opportunity throughout my life to, to travel. I've been to all the two continents. Um, I have not been to Australia because I really didn't want to go. I might want to go eventually just to say for bragging rights, and I haven't been to Antarctica, but I have been to every other, other continent. Um, I've been to many different countries, um, and I really, really enjoy going to countries that a lot of people would go, you're going there? Aren't you afraid? It's like, you know what? 
every trip cannot be to Switzerland. Sometimes you have to go where things are interesting. So, you know, you know, I went to Turkey, Egypt, and Israel during the Desert Storm War. I was in there. Everybody else canceled but me. And it was really kind of a cool thing to do because I had no trouble getting a hotel room. And when I took the, the uh, cruise up the Nile, you didn't have to wait for three days to get through the locks. You didn't have to wait to get into the pyramids. Um, I felt bad for a lot of the people that are dependent on the tourism industry because there was literally nobody there. But for me, as a traveler, it was fantastic. You know? It's kind of like the, what the pandemic has done. Um, my stepdaughter this summer went to Tanzania and, mm -hmm. you know, not really the safest place to go, but, no. uh, but she went with a few people and there, you know, there was like seven people at the resort um, where they ended their trip. They did two weeks with Mount Kilimanjaro and all that stuff. And, um, but she said, you know, that it, it actually worked out so well because there was only like seven people at the resort and, uh, you know, it was really relaxing <laughs> at the last it, few days of their trip. It, it's a wonderful thing to do. I mean, I went to Peru during the, uh, I think it was, what was the, the, the uh, rebellious group there, the Shining Light or something like that, the, anti the communist group. They've since captured the guy and locked him up for whatever reason. Um, but, you know, when you got to the airport, they escorted you into a, a bus that had bars on the windows and they padlocked the door while they waited to take you to your hotel. And I went, why are they locking us in? And I realized they weren't locking us in. They were locking everybody else out so you'd be safe. It was a right. very interesting experience. And then when you're walking through downtown Lima, everybody's got a machine gun, you know? And it's like, okay, well, I, I guess I'm safe. And I went over to them and started speaking to them because at the time I worked in the film industry, and uh, I always, whenever I traveled, I did research um, so that I could take that research back. And it was firsthand research in case we ever needed it. Said, okay, what kind of guns are you using? What's your uniform look like? I wanna take pictures of your license plates. And I would explain what my reason was. And they were very accommodating to do that. So I have pictures standing next to the, the guards at the presidential palace with machine guns over their shoulders. Wow. Camera. <laughs> well, while we're on the topic of kind of uh, world travel, I'm curious, uh, the last name Kare, uh, what cultural heritage does does that derive from? It actually is French and it means square. I, I thought it may be French. It's square. Yeah, it's there's an accent on the E um, and actually means, means the same in French as it does in English. Not only means square, if you have you been to New Orleans at all? At all? Yes. Have you been there? So there's the church, right? And then there's La Vue Carré, the old square in front of it. Oh, yeah, Carré. that's right. Yeah. yeah. Carré. Carré. And it also means straightforward. And I kind of like that, you know, because I, I, I like to think that I am straightforward, that, you know, I don't usually offer my opinion unsolicited. But if you ask me, I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to hold anything back. You know, I, I do get kind of passionate and excited about certain subjects, you know, and people have said that about me. It's like, don't hold anything back now, McLeod. <laughs> Believe me, I'm not. You know, if it's something that I really care about. If I don't care about it, then it's like, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on it. 
I'm like, kind of you know, accused of the same thing once in a while. <laughs> I'm not very good at like masking how I feel. <laughs> no, if, if I don't know anything about this, I cannot comment on it. So, um, you know, but, not, but what I would usually do is, okay, this is an opportunity to learn something. So I start doing some research, you know, and I'll, my partner, Robert, says to me, he said, you know, how do you keep all this stuff in that little pea brain of yours? You know, all this information, I forget what I was, I was postulating on at the time. He said, you can't even remember to turn the lights off. You know, I said, that's yeah. not important to me. You know, right. It's not important to me. This other stuff is important to me, you know, so uh, the things that are important true. to me, I care about. Um, but yeah, and the first name, McLeod, is obviously Scottish. And by the way, that's not my first name. I actually changed my name over 20 years ago. And it was intentionally done. Um, I lost my mother at the age of 18 from alcoholism. And um, her family name was McLeod. And um, so I kind of, I decided to adopt that. Now, my, when I started doing research on my family, um, the surname that I had at the time was actually Scandinavian, it was Swedish. Um, but I also knew that, that my grandmother, my father's mother was, was French. Um, I had presumed that um, her family were probably French Canadians that migrated down to New Orleans. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth, they weren't. Um, and then I discovered that her husband, my grandfather, who had the Swedish father, his mother was French Canadian. Um, and I don't even think he knew it because she was born in Chicago, but her father was born in, in Montreal. So when I started sharing all this information with my family, they went, well, we knew that we have French in our background, but we didn't know how much it was. It was almost all French. Um, and I thought, okay, my mother always thought she was Irish. And I figured they were probably, you know, a part of the mass migration in the 1800s. Irish Catholics, nope, they were Protestants. There are no Catholics in my family for 400 years. The French were Protestants. They were thrown out of France by Louis XIV and <laughs> pushed into England. The English wanted to get rid of them. So they sent them to the United States to be out of the way. And my family came to Virginia and they were, they were French Protestants, Huguenots. I use that in my cultural diversity class because I don't think most Americans are aware you know, obviously I like to push my French heritage because, you know, the French are often derided by Americans. Um, and I like to point out that the United States has never been at war with France. And if it hadn't been for the French, the Revolution of War would have been lost. It was the French that risked everything in order to make it. And you need to be a little appreciative. Secondly, you need to recognize who some of the movers and shakers are that are in a French background. For example, Warren Buffett's real name is Buffet. Um, <laughs> the real name for the Rockefellers is Rochefoyer. And they went to Germany when they were pushed out of France, changed the name to Rockefeller, came here. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Delano are Frank Huguenots. And I could keep going and naming more and more and more. There are a lot of French Protestants that have kind of merged into the overall culture. And, you know, am I like one of the Rockefellers of the place? No. My family isn't, but there's some of us that are kind of regular too. And so I think it's, it's something that you kind of embrace your 
your culture. I know Jared, you're Italian, and I know Italians are very much embracing their culture all the time. They never give it up. Interestingly enough, the majority of my family are Italian. My sisters all married Italian and, and Eastern Europeans. <laughs> so I have, I have nieces and nephews that are three quarters Italian. So we've got a little bit of everything in my family, um, but that happens to be what, what my background is. So um, not, to, not to prolong this, but um, my husband's yeah. a genealogical um, researcher and he loves, and this is his hobby, but now he's doing it full time because he retired. And he loves to delve into, you know, knowing where you're from. And, uh, and he found out kind of the same thing in his family over the years that, because um, they, they, they were always Catholic and that they uh -huh. weren't, you know, they were from Scotland and they were Protestant, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, part of the Irish, uh, Scott-Irish and um, that movement. Same with me. Yeah, yeah they were Scots Irish. A lot of his a lot of his family members did not want to hear it. They they did not want to hear it. His uncles and you know, a few people were like, no, no, we don't need to know that. <laughs> My family actually were pretty open to it. They were like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. What I also discovered, how I ended up in Vineland is rather serendipitous, I guess, is that I'm actually descended from the original settlers of the um, of South Jersey. That, that were Dutch and Swedish. And some of my ancestors are buried in Bridgeton. I discovered their tombstones. Oh, wow, so that's cool. I sort of, you know, they lived in Delaware and they were a part of the, uh, the Dutch colony before the English took it over. I said, I guess it's no accident that I ended up here. I yep. must have, I have some roots here. Yep, yep, it's, uh, there's always a reason. <laughs> there's something at work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very good. So, so I find myself, you know, do I really see myself as being, you know, a South Jersey, whatever? It's like, no, I'm a citizen of the United States. I have lived all over. I lived in, grew up in Ohio. I lived in California. I lived in New York. Now I'm in New Jersey. It's like, I kind of like it all, you know? And uh, I think it's kind of cool to be yeah. able to have that opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the history lesson i was really into that <laughs> you are I come sit oh i'm i'm my dad taught history for 36 years at a local high school i kind of got that through uh a little passion i'm kind of a history buff so i kind of like that little conversation we just had but uh um I, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about or had some prepared questions uh regarding the covid19 pandemic yes um, we well would you like me to talk about it or do you want to ask me specific questions? Well, you know what? Since you um, can control that message, if there's anything <laughs> that you'd like to highlight, yeah, I'll yeah. take the floor. We we have we stopped our clinics this summer when it looked like we were kind of coming out of this. You know, our numbers were going down, um, the infection rate was declining. It's like, oh, finally, we're gonna see an end to this. We can get we can get over this, we can get back to normal, we can start doing the things that we need to do. And then we started seeing the Delta variant and ticking up again. And yes, we know that people don't wanna wear masks. We know that not everybody wants to get vaccinated. We know that people want to have a normal life and they wanna go back to their social gatherings, but there are risks that are involved with that. And you need to be cognizant of that. Um, so, 
we kind of, we saw a spike up last month. I just checked the, uh, the data we get regular updates and, you know, Southeast, the, the state's divided into different sections, Southwest, Southeast, Central East, Central West, Northeast, Northwest. We are considered Southeast. That includes Cape May, Atlantic and Cumberland. And it's like, ooh, we moved from moderate to high, but so, but the whole Jersey shore was high. Ocean County was high all the way up to Monmouth County. They were moderate on the inland counties, but high probably because of what was going on at the Jersey shore. We just moved last week to moderate again, which I was very encouraged about. Okay, it's getting a little better. I know our medical director, who's Dr. Ahrens, you know, kind of fills me in on what's going up a hospital. And uh, he told me a few weeks ago, well, we're seeing not as many people in the hospital, but not the elderly people that we saw in the beginning. They're younger, but they tend to have underlying comorbidities. Um, they're obese, they have diabetes, they have other uh, issues, but it's not as crazy as it was before. Um, is Vineland in Cumberland County anywhere like it is in Florida or Texas or in some of the other states where, you know, they're lining up people in the hallways? Thankfully not. You know, I think we've done a, a better job. The population has really stepped up to the plate. They've done what they have to do. Um, we keep the message out there as much as we can that get vaccinated, um, wear your mask, socially distance, you know, try to limit your interactions with people that are not in your immediate circle. Um, and people have done a pretty good job with that. Um, I really wanna see us move from moderate to low. Um, and there have been, this is the third spike we had and it, it tends to go up, down, up, down. Are we moving from the pandemic pandemic to the endemic? We hope so. And the endemic basically means that this will always be with us, just like the flu and colds are. If, but it won't be so serious that we have to ch enormously change our behavior. It's something that you, have, you might have to get a shot every year, like a flu shot. You might have to be careful the way you behave. Um, and uh, um, we're hoping that it's moving in that direction but we're very apprehensive because we're moving into the holiday season. And that's when we saw that huge spike last year, which was the worst we'd ever seen. It immediately followed in January after Thanksgiving and Christmas and everybody got together and the, the cases went through the roof. And it's like, oh my God, not again. Um, and then it began to go down and then went up again when school started. So we're hopeful with the vaccines being um, approved school-age kids that that population will now get vaccinated and they will be you know so we can hopefully be somewhat normal again that's what we see happening you know with the, with the um with covid um but you know what people people want absolute answers and i said to our health officer the other day when uh, we were talking about this issue and people really wanting black and white answers and we can't give them black and white answers. I said, you know, it, it's like we're building an airplane while we're flying. And that's, <laughs> you know, the analogy that I use. He rather liked that one, I do too. I, sometimes I come up with some things that are kind of brilliant, right? 
pat myself on the back. Um, it's it's true it's very- because it's science, and this is something that the human race, never mind the United States, but the human race has never encountered. No, not at all. And it's yeah. like, we don't know what this is. We really People don't forget. They forget that, or they don't want to listen to that. I mean, you know, our expectation, like you say, is black and white. Like, oh, de- December 13th, it'll all be over, <laughs> you know? Yeah, we're so accustomed to modern medicine being able to cure almost everything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, why can't they fix this? And it's, it's because we really don't know what it's doing. You know, I mean, I see it with some people that, that have what's called long COVID. People that are friends of mine that had the misfortune of catching it and they go, wait a minute, I wasn't like this before. What's going on with me? Um, you know, they're, they're forgetful. They're, um, they're not able, they're, they're experiencing things that they've never experienced before. And it's disturbing to them. Um, and fortunately they lived through it, you know, um, I've known a few people that have died, unfortunately, and um, including my brother. Um, my brother died in August from it. He lives outside of Pittsburgh. And, oh, I'm uh, so sorry. Yeah, thank you. Um, and it's like, it was pretty pretty hard for the family because he's 11 years younger than I am, for one thing. And you know, he, he really had a really tough time. It didn't last very long. It went very quickly, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, has it touched my family? Yes, it's touched my family directly. It's, it's impacted people that I've known. I'm sure you could probably, you know, mention a few names yourself of people that you knew quite well that have, have, have either been very sick or have actually died from yeah. this. So this is, you know, the hardest message that we have is this is no joke, you know, and we don't really know what this is just because you had an illness that was pretty minor doesn't mean that the next person's going to be that way. Mm. Even, you know, when you have a 10 year old child who dies from COVID, everybody's really got to be afraid. And then you have a hundred year old that lives through it. You can't figure it out. I know know, that is so true. So true. And we've, um, we lost several, several family members between Joe's family and mine. So it's been rough. And, um, and it is a serious thing. And I'd like to say to everyone listening that the Vineland Chamber website always has the vaccination clinic schedules for Vineland um, on our homepage. So you can go to vinelandchamber.org um, to check that out, as well as the Vineland City website as well. And just as an FYI, because I've been asked this for weeks, the uh, historically, we only administered the uh, Moderna um, vaccine. And then we got authorization to do the, uh, the Pfizer and then the J&J, the Johnson & Johnson. And um, people say, well, when can I get my third shot? And there's been a, a lot of misinformation out there in terms of what's a third shot and what's a booster. And the news has not been very helpful in conveying the message. So I'm going to use this forum as an opportunity to, to clarify that issue so that people, you know, if they listen to this, they'll know what the difference is. Um, that for a long period of time, the third shot was not a booster. The third shot was for people in a very, very select, fortunately very small group of immune compromised, people that were getting active cancer treatment, people that had uncontrolled HIV, people who had 
uh, gotten transplants, kidneys, hearts, whatever. And so they were very immune compromised. Um, they were eligible for the third shot. That's a full dosage. The booster is something else. The booster from Moderna was just authorized last week. I got mine. I got my third booster and it's a half dose. Um, the Pfizer was authorized um, previously, a couple of weeks ago. So you could get that from the hospital. We weren't giving it at the health department because we're not always able to store the Pfizer vaccine. We, we, we got doses and we had to use them in a very brief period of time because they have to be stored at a, at a temperature that we don't have the capability of maintaining. So when we got it, we were able to do it. So we're doing the, uh, the Moderna boosters and we're doing, doing the Moderna for people that are eligible and we're doing the third shot, you know, the, 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 uh, the booster and the third, both depending on, on what it is that you need. Both are available from us. But we're also still offering the first and second shot for those people that either weren't able to get it, were reluctant, and finally, we encourage everybody, please, we have to get to herd immunity in order to protect everybody. You know, if we don't have herd immunity, we're gonna see outbreaks. And, and it, it's not 100% effective. We had some people in the health department, fully vaccinated, they got a breakthrough case. Fortunately, they were not very sick. Um, they didn't die, thankfully. Um, they were out for a few days, they came back to work. Um, so if you're looking for a vaccine, it's gonna give you 100% protection and you can go back to the way, it's not happening. It's not happening. I, I'm sorry you have that expectation, but medicine does not have that capability to protect us from all disease in all places. This is very well said. The best tools we have. Very well said. Well, thank you, McLeod. This has been a, a great interview. Um, thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it and, and uh, loved hearing about all that you're doing and your your goals and uh, the exciting things that are coming up with.